Well, I wanted to um, take today and sort of put what I hope is a little more of a tidy bow on this first half of Genesis chapter 4 with a main focus of um, uh, just a practical illustration of the key points that I've been trying to put out there uh, over the last several weeks as we've looked at this section on Cain and Abel. Um, and some of the time, it's been a little unclear, a little, a little sort of fuzzy. Um, and, and the reason, I think, for that is that the application of some of the principles we've been talking about from uh, this account of Cain and Abel and their emergence into the, the, the chronicle of human history is that it's not easy to know what the applications are going to look like in every respect. It's not easy to uh, predict um, how we should apply some of these principles that we've talked about. Um, and also, it, it warrants or it, it really requires tremendous amount of discernment and wisdom for us to walk in these principles. It's not like it's a precept kind of uh, principle that you just have to say, okay, you go and do this, and if you do this, you are faithful to the principle. It's one of those areas where the way I've kind of pressed the points um, that really does require daily, moment-by-moment spiritual discernment and wisdom as we seek to apply uh, the principles of God's Word and the truth that emerges from this historical account uh, to our daily lives in 21st century Cherokee County, Georgia, and wherever else we might go uh, in our time. So uh, I, I was thinking about just a desire and a need, really maybe just for me even, to, to put a nice um, practical application summary on this section before we move into the next section, which really deals with uh, the emergence of cities and culture and, and this whole uh, real area of common grace that we see in light of that. And then at the end of the chapter, we, we look at... Um, the birth of Seth and what that means for the chronicle of human history. But before we jump into that next section, I was hoping that we could kind of put some practical handles, some more, more tangible practical handles uh, on this. And, and most of our time will be spent illustrating something from uh, recent current events that I hope will be a good tangible way for us to, to grab hold of some of these ideas and these principles. But I, I did, there is, an, there is a, a very straightforward outline that I thought was helpful on one front to um, really identify for us what I would call a profile of unbelief, or if you want to say a profile of, of Cain, a profile of the society of Cain, or the society of the unrighteous, as we've been using these different terms interchangeably. And this, this simple outline, I'm just going to kind of uh, walk through it very uh, quickly, but it comes from Alan Ross's book called Creation and Blessing. And I think it really does sort of summarize this profile that we're talking about of, of unbelief or, or the profile of the society, the society of the unrighteous. And he starts with point number one, saying that unbelief becomes angry over God's approval of those found more faithful. So if you look at the first five verses of Genesis chapter 4 and you see how that transpires, you see that God accepts the offering um, and accepts Abel and his offering. Uh, Cain knows that, sees that. His offering is not received. He is not received by the Lord in the same way that Cain is, and his response is anger. And we talked a little bit about that as um, even though it was his response, it wasn't his necessary response, and he had another option. 
um, that, was, that was there before him. But that's the, the typical response uh, of unbelief, is it becomes angry over God's approval of others who are found to be more faithful. The second point that he gives in his book is that unbelief disregards the warnings against sin. And, of course, we see that in Cain very clearly. Um, God warned Cain uh, in verses 6 to 8 that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Um, So he had ample warning to sort of right the ship and to take another course um, by virtue of of God's clear caution there. But But unbelief disregards those kinds of warnings, by and large. The third uh, point of this profile of unbelief, he says that unbelief repudiates the responsibility for sin. It repudiates the responsibility for sin. And you see this in verse 9, and basically this, um, this sort of cavalier response when he's confronted by God, when Cain is confronted by God, about the, the location of his brother, and he obviously lies by saying he didn't know, and then he has this sort of this scoffing kind of response, am I my brother's keeper? You know, uh, w- w- why is this my responsibility? Uh, why are you asking me this question is kind of the, the idea there. And so unbelief repudiates the responsibility for sin. It excuses sin. It rejects accountability, th- those kinds of ideas. And fourthly, unbelief protests the punishment for sin. Again, Cain, Cain did that as well in verses 10 to 14. Um, he, he felt like that this was just too great of a consequence. Um, how, can I, how can I endure such a consequence? And he was protesting, really, um, the, the punishment for sin, as opposed to that becoming a means by which it brings about repentance, or even some recognition that, you know, actually, I did murder my brother, and I am responsible for that. So there's no real sense of justice there either in his mind. So it's just a, a complete protest for the punishment for sin. And then fifthly, the fifth point in his profile um, is that unbelief continues under divine protection. And again, this is about the character of God. We saw this in Genesis chapter 3, that even though there was clear disobedience to God's command, and even though there was a curse that was leveled out, there was still grace, there was still care, there was... There was the slaying of the animal and the creating of those, those coverings for Adam and Eve. So you have the same character of God being manifest here uh, in verses 15 to 16, where there is a protective uh, statement that's made uh, by God on behalf of Cain that no one shall strike him, and if they do, then vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So there's, there's an element of God's grace and even God's common grace that we're going to talk about more fully uh, in the next section that is, um, that is common, <laughs> it's clear, uh, in, in the society of Cain or, or in the profile of unbelief, there is still the common grace of God that is, that is, um, it is offered and it is enjoyed by unbelievers. Um, and so that's kind of this profile that he paints. Now, one of the, I guess one of the main points or really the driving point that I, I, I attach to this comparison or contrast between the society of Cain and the society of Abel was that there is no middle ground between these two. No middle ground. And I want to just kind of fully clarify that principle. There is common ground. And again, I'm using these terms very specifically. I know that there could be some interchangeability depending upon the context, but just for the sake of our discussion, I'm using these terms very distinctly for this purpose. 
between the, the society of unbelievers and the society of believers, the society of the righteous or redeemed and the society of the unredeemed, the society of Cain, the society of Abel. There is no middle ground, meaning there is no neutral ground. There's no sort of place that this worldview or this ideology and those who hold it can walk over to this middle line between this opposing worldview and this opposing ideology, and in between there's sort of this green zone. There's this neutral territory. It's called fence. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's called that's where compromise happens, and we're going to talk about that. You can't. And he's making the point. You can't stand on this fence. It doesn't exist, really. So obviously, you can't stand on what doesn't exist. But there's often times, either in our own thinking, our own sort of erroneous thinking, or even more intentional on the part of of people or organizations or even churches to physically create these structures, these, these, these middle ground, neutral zone kinds of structures, so that you can stand and traffic in that area, in, in, this, in this space, this neutral space, where unbelievers and believers have, a, have neutral uh, ideology that they can share for communication. And the, and the intent is, is, is mission-oriented often, or gospel-oriented often, but it's an erroneous presupposition. It's an erroneous um, disposition to have in the first place because it doesn't exist. And we're going to talk about that a little more clearly with this, this illustration that I want to bring uh, to your attention. And it's from a, a, a news story that happened earlier this year that many of you, I'm sure, will remember. But again, the point, when I say middle ground, what I'm talking about is neutral ground. I'm not talking about the idea of common experience or that we're all image bearers of God and created in God's image. I'm not talking about those common things that we all share. We all suffer from the consequences of the fall and the curse. We all deal with decaying bodies and the decaying world, and we all deal with a lot of common things together. We all have to deal with the flesh in one way or another. Okay, so all, there's, there's definitely common ground, but there's not this middle or neutral ground. Now, I, I think that as I read about this, this account again, I kind of got there in a weaving kind of way, but uh, it, it really just, in my mind, made this so clear for, for even for me. So I wanted to kind of bring it to you to sort of wrap up this, this little section on this, this principle of no, there being no middle or neutral ground between these two societies. Uh, d- does the name Larisha Hawkins ring a bell? Larisha Hawkins? What if I said Larisha Hawkins... Professor of Political Science at Wheaton University. Does that ring a bell? You guys remember a news story from earlier this year? So Larisha Hawkins was a professor of political science at Wheaton College, Wheaton University, which is a decidedly Christian college. I mean, they have statements of faith, and, and they, they profess you know, their Christian convictions as a, as a Christian university. Um, and this, uh, this professor, um, Larisha Hawkins... She, um, in December, during Advent, she, made, she posted something on her Facebook page um, that got her into some hot water with the university, okay? Um, she, let's see, she said, she announced on Facebook that she would don a hijab as part of her Advent devotion to, support, uh, to show support for Muslims who had been under scrutiny since mass shootings in Paris and San Bernardino, California. In her Facebook post on December 16th, 
2015, Hawkins said, I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people of the book. She posted on Facebook along with a photograph of herself in her hijab, this, this um, attire, this Muslim attire. And then she went on to say, as Pope Francis stated, we worship the same God. Okay, so there, there's the middle ground statement, right? That's what I'm talking about. There's this clear Christian uh, statement about the, here's the middle ground, and I'm standing in solidarity. I'm standing firmly in this clearly neutral zone, this clearly middle point. Okay? Well, you'll, I think that'll become clear in just a moment. So she's referencing uh, history and Abraham and the appeal to Abraham, but we'll, t- we'll talk about that. I'm, I'm going to read several things that'll, I think, elucidate that even further. Um, so she makes this statement, and she basically uh, you know, falls prey to this middle ground fallacy. There is no middle ground between these two societies, as we're trying to make this point. Now, in an NPR interview, and again, that was on December 16th, so... Shortly after that, I mean, like, really shortly after that, possibly even the next day, I don't have the date here, um, uh, she said, Hawkins, in an NPR interview, she argues that her Facebook post was, quote, not actually a theological treatise, but rather a statement that I stand in solidarity with women wearing the hijab, as I think Jesus would as he came to embody what it means to love neighbor and love God and love yourself. So there's no theology in that, right? Do you see how that starts to get a little bit dicey? So she's, she's making the argument that she's, she's not making a theological treatise. It's just more of a standing in solidarity with this, this, these people who are really being um, unnecessarily um, sort of categorized as a result of these recent terrorist attacks. But she's not making a theological statement. It's not a theological treatise. She's just doing this as she thinks Jesus would as he came to embody what it means to love neighbor and love God and love yourself. So she's not making a theological statement, but then she supports what she's doing by speaking theological statements. Now, Wheaton College, this is from the, uh, the NPR interview, Wheaton College, for its part, has asserted that the school's decision had nothing to do with Hawkins' decision to wear the headscarf. The school says instead that it was a matter of theological disagreement. So Wheaton is saying it is about a theological disagreement here. The freedom to wear a headscarf as a gesture of care and compassion for individuals in Muslim or other religious communities that may face discrimination or persecution is afforded to Dr. Hawkins as a faculty member of Wheaton College, the school wrote in a December 16th statement. Yet, her recently expressed views, including that Muslims and Christians worship the same God, appear to be, and this is interesting, a little bit of a softening of the language here, they appear to be in conflict with the college's statement of faith. So even the college is sort of hedging a little bit. They, they appear to be in... Yeah, quite a bit. Uh, Hawkins disagrees with the premise of the statement. Quote, This post was not about theology, she tells Martin. It was about solidarity, which is a Christian principle. Now, before I go on to the next little phase of this, this illustration, here's, here's kind of the, the, the point. When Christians attempt to identify this middle ground line with unbelievers upon which they stand in solidarity there. They try to stand firmly there in some way for some purpose, some missional purpose, some social cause or purpose. When they try to stand there, the very foundations of their theology begin to crumble, and it gets messy, and it gets messy fast. 
That's what happens when you try to do that. Now, this incident was followed by a, an interview on NPR on December 20th. So you're getting the timeline. This is happening sort of in rapid fashion. So on December 20th of 2016, the question that was put on the table was this. Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Again, let's, let's fight for this middle ground. That was the question that was being sort of discussed, semi-debated, if you will, in a what was a, a phone interview with several, several people participating. Um, so let me just read the transcript, and, and I want to just kind of make some points from the transcript as we go forward. It's a short, it was a four-minute interview, so it's really short. So it says, we're going to begin the program today talking about what seems to be on the surface a personnel matter, but it's a story that raises larger theological questions, and it comes at a sensitive moment in interfaith relations. It's a story out of Wheaton College, an evangelical Christian school in Illinois, where associate political science professor Larisha Hawkins decided to wear a headscarf during the Advent season as a gesture of solidarity with Muslims. In doing so, she quoted Pope Francis saying Christians and Muslims, quote, worship the same God, unquote. Some evangelical Christians disagree, and Wheaton authorities this past week put Hawkins on paid administrative leave, saying it needed time to review whether her statement puts her at odds with the faith perspective that is required of those who work at the college. And here's the, inver- here's the, in- inter- the transcript of the interview uh, uh, by Tom Jelton and several others. I'll try to pronounce some of these names. But... So here's uh, Tom Jelton. He says, Mainstream Muslims would probably say they do worship the same God that Christians or Jews worship. Zeki Saratoprik, a professor of Islamic studies at John Carroll University in Cleveland, points out that the Quran includes the biblical story of Jacob asking his sons whom they'll worship after his death. Zeki Saratoprik says, Jacob's sons replied, We will worship the God of your fathers, Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac. He is the God. So, this God that Jacob worshipped, this God that Abraham, Isaac worshipped, is the same God that Muslims worship today. Then Gelatin says, Christians and Jews all see Abraham and his descendants as their faith ancestors. So, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are considered the Abrahamic faiths. Christians, however, believe in a triune God. There's God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And many evangelicals will say that that means Muslims and Jews do not worship the same God as Christians. Albert Moeller is president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and here's what Dr. Moeller said. The question basically comes down to whether one can reject Jesus Christ as the Son and truly know God the Father. And it's Christ himself who answered that question most classically in the Gospel of John, and he said that, no, he said that to reject the Son means that, no one, means that one does not know the Father. And then Jelton replied, But Christians themselves differ on this question. The Second Vatican Council, speaking to Catholics in 1964, affirmed that Muslims together with us adore the one merciful God. And Amy Plantiga Powell, a professor of Christian theology at Louisville Seminary, says Christians can have their own definition of God while still seeing commonality with Muslims and Jews. So now you've got the interviewer going to Dr. Moeller, who represents the radical right-wing fundamentalist wacko sect of Christianity, and then you're coming back now to the more reasoned position of this Christian uh, professor of theology at Louisville Seminary, a Methodist seminary, or excuse me, a, a, a Presbyterian seminary, 
Presbyterian USA, by the way, I think. Um, so Amy Plantiga Powell says this, to say that we worship the same God is not the same as insisting that we have an agreed and shared understanding of God. Jelton says this, one theologian with knowledge of both Christian and Islamic doctrine is Hamza Youssef, president of Zaytuna College in Berkeley, California, the first Muslim liberal arts college in the United States. Born Mark Hansen, he was raised as a Christian and converted to Islam. He quotes the Quran as saying that God is immeasurable, so to define God in some particular way is impossible. Yusuf says this, God is much greater than anything we can imagine. The Muslims have a statement in our theology, whatever you imagine God to be, God is other than that. Jelton says, at Louisville Seminary, affiliated with the Presbyterian Church, Amy Plantiga Powell says she's preparing her students for ministries that are likely to involve work with people other, of other faith traditions. She says she'd like them to remember that no religious community can claim God's favor. Powell says this, No one is in a position of saying, well, we know exactly how God works in the world, and my particular group has a monopoly on that. Jelton says, well, sometimes it seems that people do say that. Powell says, yeah, there are certainly Muslims who will say that. There are certainly Christians who will say that. But it's out of my own Christian conviction that I think we have to approach these issues with a kind of humility and a kind of generosity toward others, simply because God's ways are not our ways. So bringing in Christian principles of humility and generosity, even quoting God's ways are not our ways, to make the case here. The interviewer Jelton says this, In its statement about Professor Hawkins' idea that Muslims and Christians worship the same God, Wheaton College says it rejects religious prejudice and has a commitment to treat our neighbors with love and respect as Jesus commanded us to do. But our compassion, quote, the statement says, must be infused with theological clarity. And that's the end of the interview. Now, I just want to point out, that Dr. Moeller, which would be the, the view that would be shared by our church, and our church's doctrinal position, he got two sentences out of 32. He got 3% of airtime in that interview. The whole angle and thrust of the interview was to create and construct this middle ground for us to dance on. Whether it's from a Christian perspective, or a former Christian converted Muslim perspective, or devout Muslim theological perspective. It's all, let's create this middle ground for us to dance upon. And your view, and my view, is going to get 3% airtime in that environment. That's the reality of this, this situation, this scenario. Now, if you think about this for a second, I want you to think with me for a minute. If you, if you were to pick up the transcript of this interview, or if you were to hear it uh, yourself live or in a recording, and you were to just hear it transpire, transpire in the way that it did, with the amount of airtime given to each individual contributor as it was, what do you think, and, and, and by the way, you were reading this or hearing this, and you weren't bringing to that, that listening or that reading a substantive theological foundation. You were bringing sort of a professed Christian faith, but it's not really substantive. It's just sort of, I go to church, you know, periodically, and, you know, yeah, I believe there's a God, and I believe Jesus came at Christmas time, and that kind of thing. I mean, it's that kind of, that kind of framework. So you're coming at this interview with that lens, looking at it through that framework. What do you think are some conclusions that you might draw if you heard those arguments being posited? What do you think you would say about that? All religions are the same. They're just variations on the same thing. Sounds good to me. 
compelling. This is these are compelling arguments. It's it's and I would even say that that where this where this kind of environment takes people is these conclusions that would be like it's not Christian to judge others. So Dr. Moeller comes on the scene and in two swift sentences completely judges an entire group of people. That's that's the sense here. And it's not Christian to do that, by the way. You know that, right? You're not supposed to do that. That's that's a conclusion. Or how about this? Yeah, that's right. Who are you to define God in such narrow terms? Right? That's what they even talked about that in the interviews. That was some of the response. I agree. Or how about this one? That's the problem with fundamentalists. They're so judgmental and they always make Christians look bad. This is just me making stuff up. They always want to split theological hairs and they completely overlook the fact that God is love and that Jesus came to serve and not be served. He came to show us how to love people of all walks of life and systems of belief. In other words, this middle ground that gets constructed is the same ground that Jesus would be walking if he were here today. That's the argument. So when I'm trying to make this point and figure out application, you can see we're talking about an environment that we live in where I don't know exactly what all kinds of places we're going to have to figure out how to walk in a way that honors the Lord and loves our neighbor, but stands on the truth, because it's, it's dicey out there right now. Okay, so let me continue. Obviously, Dr. Moeller wasn't content with his two sentences, um, so he actually wrote a follow-up article on December 18th to kind of elucidate more on the subject. So the question, he's posing the question again, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? He says, is that true? The answer to that question depends upon a distinctly Christian and clearly biblical answer to yet another question. Can anyone truly worship the Father while rejecting the Son? So completely reframing the question in a more biblical, theological perspective is what he does. But he's not going to get that opportunity on a radio interview like that. And neither are you or I in the public square. We're just not going to get that opportunity. Can anyone truly worship the Father while rejecting the Son? The Christian's answer to that question must follow the example of Christ. Jesus himself settled the question when he responded to Jewish leaders who confronted him after he had said, I am the light of the world. When they denied him, Jesus said, If you knew me, you would know my Father also, John 8, 19. Later in that same chapter, Jesus used some of the strongest language of his earthly ministry in stating clearly that to deny him is to deny the Father. Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. Christians worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and no other God. We know the Father through the Son, and it is solely through Christ's atonement for sin that salvation has come. Salvation comes to those who confess with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised Him from the dead, Romans 10.9. The New Testament leaves no margin for misunderstanding. To deny the Son is to deny the Father. To affirm this truth is not to argue that non-Christians, our Muslim neighbors included, know nothing true about God, or to deny that the, the three major monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, share some major theological beliefs. There is common ground. There's just not a middle ground. You see that? All three religions affirm that there is only one God and that He has spoken to us by divine revelation. All three religions point to what each claims to be revealed scriptures. Historically, Jews and Christians and Muslims have affirmed many points of agreement on moral teachings. 
All three theological worldviews hold to a linear view of history, unlike many Asian worldviews that believe in a circular view of history. And yet, when we look more closely, even these points of agreement begin to break down. Christian Trinitarianism is rejected by both Judaism and Islam. Muslims deny that Jesus Christ is the incarnate and eternal Son of God and go further to deny that God has a Son. Any reader of the New Testament knows that this was a major point of division between Christianity and Judaism. The central Christian claim that Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah and the divine Son become flesh to the separation of the church and the synagogue uh, led to the separation of the church and the synagogue as revealed in the book of Acts. There is historical truth in the claim of the three Abrahamic religions because Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all look to Abraham as a principal figure and a model of faith. But this historical truth is far surpassed in importance by the fact that Jesus explicitly denied that salvation comes merely by being one of Abraham's children in John 8. He told the Jewish leaders who rejected him that their rejection revealed that they were not Abraham's true sons that they did not, if they did not truly know God and that they not, did not truly know God. Christians do not deny that Muslims know some true things about God. As a matter of fact, in Romans 1, 19-20, which we talked about, Paul explains that all people have some real knowledge of God by general revelation so that they are without excuse. Speaking at Mars Hill in Athens in Acts 17, Paul argued that even some of the Greeks' own philosophers and poets gave evidence of a rudimentary knowledge of God, but this was not saving knowledge, and the apostle was brokenhearted when he saw the Athenians at worship. In making her claim that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, the professor claimed the authority of Pope Francis. And since Vatican II, the Roman Catholic Church has become ever more explicit in its teaching that salvation can come without a conscious and explicit faith in Christ. This is simply not an option for evangelical Christians committed to the authority of Scripture alone and to the gospel as defined in the New Testament. I'm going to skip down. Evangelical Christians understand that theologically there is a genetic link between Judaism and Christianity. That is why Christians must always be humbled by the fact that we have been grafted into the promises first made to Israel. In terms of both history and theology, there is no genetic link between Christianity and Islam. The Quran claims that that to confess Jesus Christ as the divine Son and the second person of the Trinity is to commit blasphemy against Allah. Now here's the key point for, and this was actually the subtitle of the actual article, the pull quote, hard times come with hard questions. And our cultural context exerts enormous pressure on Christians to affirm common, or in our purpose, middle ground at the expense of theological differences. But the cost of getting this question wrong is the loss of the gospel. In other words, if you want to confuse areas of common commonality with opportunity to build a middle neutral ground, It's disastrous and devastating to the gospel. He goes on to say, We love all people everywhere as our neighbor. Love of neighbor also demands that we tell our neighbor neighbor the truth concerning Christ as the only way to truly know the Father. We must also understand that the most basic issue is the one Jesus answered with absolute clarity. One cannot, cannot deny the Son and truly worship the Father. There is no question that the Muslim is our neighbor, but there is no way to remain faithful to Scripture and the Gospel and then claim that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Now again, this is not intended to be a diatribe on Muslim versus Christian theology. It's just that that's the most prominent, clear example that's really at the forefront of news right now. 
The point here is that whether it's Muslim or any other alternate view, other than the clearly biblical Christian, historical, orthodox Christian view of who Jesus is and who he, what he came to do and what he accomplished on the cross and on and on, apart from that, there's no, there's no middle ground. So, this is what I mean by the presence of middle ground. It's imaginary, and there's no way that opposing worldviews can sustain this warm theological embrace under the rubric of the love of Christ without compromising fundamental biblical theological convictions. There's no way that it can be done. And yet... And yet, we're called to love our neighbor. So, to kind of summarize all this, again, I keep saying it over and over again, there's no middle or neutral ground between opposing worldviews in these two societies that we've been talking about. There are obviously common shared experiences. There are common, occasionally there are common reference points. We talked about that here in these articles where they... The, um, Christianity and Islam and Judaism all appeal to Abraham and places in Scripture, Old Testament references and that kind of thing. So there's occasional common reference points. There's common humanity and intrinsic value as those created in the image of God. And that we can never forget. There's also the commonality of fallen flesh, sort of the common experience of the curse, But there is no middle or neutral ground, no middle, neutral, ideological or theological ground for us to either try to construct or to occupy in our efforts to love our neighbor. The second point here is that the society of Cain and the society of Abel are neighbors. We are neighbors. And as Christians, we're called to love our neighbors. And loving our neighbors does not mean we compromise the truth, but rather it explicitly demands we speak and live the truth before them. And therein lies the rub. So, in loving our neighbor, we love them with the truth, speaking the truth, living the truth before them, with gentleness, with respect, with kindness, but still uncompromisingly, with full conviction and full assurance of faith in the authority of Scripture. We're called to love our neighbor in this way. And then thirdly, if we are truly loving our neighbors in this society of Cain that we've been talking about, most of them will probably hate us because they hate God. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They're at enmity with God. What did Jesus say? They hate you, they hated me. I mean, there's... And yet, we are to remain steadfast in our uncompromising love. Now, turn back to the first Peter passage about not returning evil for evil, about submitting to authorities, about being peacemakers in society. So when we start trying to think about how do you apply these kinds of principles Give me one example that I can just hold on to. It's very difficult to just have that one prescriptive way that this is how you do it. It's one of Satan's master strokes. 
that the middle grounders will take a scripture here or a scripture there out of context in order to justify their position. And like Satan when he tempted Christ in the desert, that's what he did. Yep. And yet Christ, he knew the scriptures, so he would come back at him with another scripture. That's right. That's the only thing. We have to know the word in its entirety. Otherwise, we can fall prey to this kind of thinking too. Absolutely. We, and we, unfortunately, we often do. And whether we do it in word and in deed, oftentimes we do in our thinking. You know, we, we, get, we get sucked into just patterns and ways of thinking that are very much secular if you really uh, you know, unpack it. They're very much oriented toward something going on in the culture and the world around us that's influencing how we're thinking. And even though we may restrain our lips, our, our hearts are still uh, falling prey to that, that way of thinking. So you're absolutely right. And, and that's why I'm so thankful for a church like ours, but I'm also um, burdened for the, the church as a whole because these matters of faith and practice are not going to be lived out faithfully apart from a firm, being firmly rooted and grounded in the truth. And we see that in these interviews. It just won't, it just won't happen. You see that with our, our country, you know, the foundation. I mean, not that they were all Christians, but they incorporated Christian faith. Right. And then we're pushing God out of our culture. That's right. So even in the public square, the, the, the norms of society that were kind of undergirded by sound truth and principles from Scripture and all that, that's all being laid to waste. So there's not even, there, there's, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a, a removal of the common grace um, that was afforded. It's the judgment that's coming, you know, like the Romans won judgment. Yeah. yeah, we're in it for sure. So it's it's... It's, I would say it's, it's uh, in, in ways, it's perilous times, but it's great times to be a believer. Mm-hmm. It's a great time because, because the truth, when it's communicated, stands in stark contrast to pretty much everything else out there. So it's a great opportunity and a great time for us to be uh, the people of God in this community and in this church, um, proclaiming the truth and witnessing faithfully to it. Well, to give us a, just a little bit of a, a little bit of a taste of where we're going to go next week, and I think we'll, the, the the pace of the narrative picks up quite a bit. I mean, you get into chapter five, and there's a lot of genealogical information, and really, it's kind of starting to head downhill fast toward Noah. That's kind of where the the text is taking us, and we're going to get into to the flood. But I, I do want to spend some time next week talking about the emergence of cities and culture and the arts and um, industry, it's all kind of outlined there. This is the, this is the only uh, pre-flood record of human history that we have. This is it. So this kind of gives us those, those beginnings of those kinds of things that really are further examples of both the common grace of God to allow human flourishing in the world, even though they're separate from God, what does is, what is, uh, Cain do? He departs from the presence of the Lord. And we'll see that he goes and he has children and he's the, the, his son Enoch builds a city and all the, these things begin to emerge uh, culturally, socially, the arts, creativity. Um, all these things begin to emerge as part of God's common grace and they 
the society of Cain, if you will, is able to enjoy those things and benefit from those things under, God, under, under the common grace of God. And yet, we'll talk about how um, even under that umbrella of God's common grace, it's those things that become the source of joy and happiness. And it's very temporal. And they become monuments of human accomplishment as opposed to um, ways to exalt the goodness and grace of God. So we'll talk about that as well and try to draw some of those principles uh, away from that last section of Genesis chapter 4 as we wrap it up. All right. Any final thoughts? Concluding thoughts? All right. Let's pray.